Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, historians often like to look back in history and they will debate uh, which events uh, from history uh, impacted the world the most. Do an, do an internet search of events that changed the world and you'll see some obvious choices. Notable events include those such as uh, revolutions in places like France, Russia, and the United States, uh, large wars such as World War I and World War II, important inventions like uh, Gutenberg's printing press, and also significant discoveries like Columbus discovering the Americas. It's true, all these events definitely had a a large impact on the history of the world, changed uh, the world so much, it's hard to comprehend just how important they were. Of course, as Christians, we know there's one event that surpasses all the rest. That event, of course, is the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other event in world history that's been so impactful as this one. In fact, we can call the crucifixion of Christ the turning point of all world history. Before it happened, God the Father guided all of history to make this event a reality. And after it happened, God continues to guide history so that the impact of the crucifixion of Christ reaches the ends of the earth. And the change that Christ's death brings is a lot more than just political or social, although it is that too. But the death of Christ changes our lives. It changes our eternal future. It changes our relationship to God. It changes our very identity changes everything for us who believe in Jesus Christ. We hope to see some of these things this morning from our text from Luke 23. And so I preach you God's word this morning under the following theme, the death of God's Son changes the entire world. We have two points. First of all, it changes the order of the world. Second of all, it changes the people of the world. Now, the Lord Jesus suffered so much on this dreadful day of his crucifixion. But in our text, Jesus' suffering has come to its climax. And here we see three significant events described in rapid succession. There's uh, three hours of darkness as Christ hung from the cross. Then immediately it shifts to the temple curtain tearing in two, and there's also Christ speaking his last words to God the Father. We're going to see how each of these three things fits into our theme and and also how it fits into um, the, the first point. First, there's the darkness. Luke describes it like this. It was now the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. Christ had already been on the cross for three hours when this darkness came upon the land. But at noon, the sun's light failed, 
and the darkness lasted until 3 p.m. It really is astounding. This was the hottest part of the day. This is when the sun's light shines the brightest. But exactly at this point, the sun's light failed. When it says darkness covered the whole land, it's unclear exactly what this all included. Perhaps it included the surrounding area of Jerusalem or Judea, perhaps all the land of Israel, perhaps more. But what is clear is that this was an unnatural darkness. This was noon, and it couldn't have been a solar eclipse because Jesus' death took place at Passover which coincided with the full moon. There was no eclipse. Instead, something else was going on. Something cosmic, something uh, world-changing, something astounding. In the Old Testament prophets, we get a clue of what's going on. Darkness often signaled the coming day of the Lord. For example, listen to Joel 2. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The sun and the moon are darkened. The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Listen also to another example from Amos 8 verse 9. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Now, there are many instances of the day of the Lord uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, In Old Testament times, the day of the Lord was often a day of reckoning, a reckoning, a day of change, a, a day of judgment. And that's what we have here in the crucifixion of God's Son. On this Good Friday, the day of the Lord has come upon God's own Son. And that is a shocking thing of the crucifixion of Christ. This is so far removed from what rightfully should have happened to Him, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. God's own Son, a perfect Son, receives a day of gloom and thick darkness. And so with this, it seems like the the order of the world has unraveled, it seems. It's been turned on its head, so even the sun stops shining at midday. This should not be that the Son of God receives this day of gloom and thick darkness. It was necessary for our sakes. The great day of the Lord, which is so often a day of reckoning, a day of judgment, fell upon Christ so that our sins would be forgiven. We should know there is another day of the Lord coming on this earth. It is when Christ will return again to judge the living and the dead. But now, because of the crucifixion of Christ, it's brought about a change. We can look forward 
to that day, that day when Christ returns. Listen only to what we read from Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encouraging each other as you see that day drawing near. We can encourage each other because of what happened the crucifixion of Christ. So that's the darkness at Christ's crucifixion. But the detail of the sun's light failing is immediately followed by another significant detail. Verse 45 says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now there were two temple curtains. The first one separated the, the, the courtyard from the holy place where the priest did their regular work. The second one separated the holy place from the most holy place. Inside the most holy place lay the ark of the Lord. It was a place that God lived among his people in a special way. Now the temple curtain mentioned in our text is most likely this second curtain. And tearing uh, this curtain in two was uh, by no means an easy feat. Uh, this thing was huge. It was made of thickly woven material. And not only that, but some historians estimate that in this particular temple that was uh, renovated by King Herod, they estimate that this curtain t- was, uh, stood over 50 feet high. So this is no small curtain that you might have in your home. It was, it was huge. No man could tear this temple curtain in two. God himself tore it right down the middle. And I can only imagine what the priests thought when they saw the curtain torn in two. You know, they might have nearly had a heart attack. They were now exposed to the, whole, the most holy place. Of course, we aren't told their reaction, but we do know this act was monumental in the history of God's people and in the history of God's plan of salvation. You see, the temple and the tabernacle before it represented the, the very uh, center of Israel's identity. It lay at the center of their worship of Yahweh, and his special relationship to Israel. And so the tearing on this temple curtain signaled a, a monumental transformation. The very structure of how God related to his people was changing. Indeed, it, sh- it signals a shift from that old covenant made with Israel at Sinai. It represents a shift from that covenant to the new covenant in Christ. Hebrews 9 speaks about the Old Covenant tabernacle or temple and the ministry of the priests there. Verses 6 and 7 describe it like this. Uh, The priests go regularly into the first section of the tabernacle, performing their ritual ritual duties. But into the second section, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And then the The author of Hebrews adds, in Hebrews 9, verses 8 and 9, By this, by these regulations, 
the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section or tent is still standing, which is symbolic for the age then present. What does that mean? Well, it means that the Old Testament tabernacle and then temple symbolize the character of the Old Covenant. And part of that included all those, so, all those restrictions in approaching God and coming before the Lord. Access to God was so limited. Only the high priest could come in the most holy place and only once per year. And for the rest of the time, the temple curtain separated even the priests from God's throne room in the most holy place, and the average Israelite, well, just forget about it. You're not getting near there. So that curtain, it represented a barrier. As Hebrews 9 says, the way to God was not yet opened as long as that temple curtain remained there. But here at Christ's death, that Old Testament temple curtain, that barrier between God and And his people was removed, torn in two. Now that's not to say that there's no longer any temple curtain or veil. No, there is. We see a shift from a temple made with hands to a temple made without hands. There remains a temple in a most holy place. It's God's throne room in heaven. Think also what we read in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So there remains a temple curtain. The old covenant curtain was torn in two. It's now obsolete. But a new one was erected in the body of Jesus. The new temple curtain is is Jesus Christ. His flesh. And just as the old covenant high priest entered the most holy place through that, that temple curtain, we, as believers... Enter the presence of God through Jesus Christ, through that new covenant curtain. You see, as believers, we are united to Jesus Christ. And it's through that union with Christ into his flesh by faith that we gain access to God. And as we enter God's presence through the flesh of Christ, Jesus' blood covers us and all of our sins so that we might be accepted right into the presence of God. As Hebrews 10 says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So that's the second thing in our text, temple curtain torn in two. Oh, such a monumental shift in God's dealing with his people and in the world. Third thing is described in verse 46. 
And Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And the Lord Jesus here gives a confession of absolute trust and submission. He already willingly went to the cross, and with his confession, he shows he willingly gives himself up all the way to death, trusting in his Father, trusting that God would receive his Spirit. Now, with these words, the Lord Jesus quotes from Psalm 31. The exact words come from the beginning of verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. We sang those words from Psalm 31 earlier. Now that's verse 5, but actually the entire psalm nicely fits into the context of Jesus' suffering and death. You see, Psalm 31 is a psalm of trust. The righteous person in that psalm is suffering at the hands of his enemies but he continues to trust in God despite it all. He calls out to God, being confident that despite his suffering, despite the attacks, God will hear him and will deliver him. He knows God is his rock. He knows God is faithful. He trusts that God preserves his people. And those things certainly apply to our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that being the case, we might wonder, well, how does this fit in with our first point, you know, changing the order of the world? How does, yeah, Christ quoting Psalm 31, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, change the order of the world in any way? And here I would say we see again a change at the cross of Christ. Uh, we see a change in the character of the old covenant to the new covenant. In Psalm 31, the psalmist faces enemies and suffering and calls out to God and is delivered in this life. He is saved from physical enemies, and that fits the, the overall pattern of the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament, you see the people of God faced physical danger, physical enemies. They called out to God, and God saved them from those enemies. Their lives were preserved in this life. Think of David saved from the hand of Saul. Think of Hezekiah saved from the Assyrian army. Think of Daniel saved from the lion's den. And the list goes on and on. We see a pattern shift at Christ's death. He, as it were, was delivered completely into the hands of his enemies. They tortured him, crucified him, mocked him, and killed him. It was complete devastation. And if the psalmist of Psalm 31 died in the same way, we could say in the context of that psalm and that covenant, that God seemed to not deliver him. But here Christ still makes this confession of trust into your hands, I commit my spirit, despite not being delivered in this life. And how can he do this? It's because his obedience, his obedience unto death has overcome death, and he trusts that this will happen. 
He's given over to that enemy death, but death will not have the final say. And this is true for us because the sting of death has been removed in the death of Christ. Our sins have been removed. And so in Jesus Christ, the promises of God to save his people, they extend far beyond this, this life, extend into eternity. That's not to say the Old Testament saints ultimately received a different salvation than Christians today. Those Old Testament acts of salvation of the Lord, saving His people from their physical enemies, give a picture of His salvation to His New Testament people today. And you know, God might give us over to physical death, as Christ was. God might deliver us into the hands of physical enemies, even as we call for help. Persecutors might be given power to mock and kill Christians just as they killed Christ. But that doesn't mean God has not heard His people's cries. It doesn't mean God hasn't helped His people doesn't mean we can't make the same confession in Psalm 31. No, the sting of death has been removed by Christ. We have eternal life in Him. So no matter what people might do to us, we continue to trust the Lord. Our lives are in His hand. Death has been conquered by Christ for us who believe. And even when we enter the grave, we make the same confession as Christ. Father, into Your hands... I commit my spirit. We can trust that God will hear us and receive us. That brings us to our second point. Now, Christ Jesus entrusted his spirit to God the Father, and then he breathed his last and died. Our text then shifts uh, from describing the events surrounding Christ's death itself uh, to the three groups of people uh, described in our text and, and their reaction. The first person mentioned is the centurion. And verse 47 describes his reaction like this. When, this, when uh, he saw what had taken place, the centurion praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Now, a centurion was a sort of captain in the, in the Roman army, he was in charge of the soldiers who crucified Jesus, and he had probably seen many crucifixions uh, during his time as centurion. But something struck him as being incredibly different about this one, with our Lord Jesus Christ. He couldn't help but exclaim, surely this man was innocent. And what made the centurion say this? Well, it could be any number of things. Perhaps he heard Jesus pray for God uh, to forgive those who crucified him. He probably never heard someone crucified say something like that before. Perhaps he saw how Christ responded to the constant mocking on the cross. Perhaps it was any number of things. But whatever it was, this man knew that Christ Jesus was different. He was innocent. He was righteous. 
He didn't deserve to die this horrible death, and the centurion knew it. And in this little detail of the centurion's reaction, we also see something else. We see a hint of God's bigger plan. His bigger plan to reveal his son to all nations. Think about it. This centurion was a Roman soldier and a Gentile. And yet here, this Gentile was confessing important truths about Jesus. His eyes are opened to reality. He could see it. Christ didn't deserve to die. He was right. But this insight doesn't come from himself. Only God could open his eyes to look with those eyes of faith. Right after Jesus dies, a Gentile first makes a confession about him. This was the beginning of countless Gentiles coming to confess Jesus as the righteous Son of God. This underscores the power of Christ's death. By his sacrifice, Jesus purchased people from every nation and language, including us. By his death, he acquired for them, including us, the gift of faith and every other saving benefit. And the death of Jesus has the power to bring anyone to faith. And the death of Jesus has secured faith and salvation for those whom God has chosen. And the centurion's confession shows just something. God's plan to reveal his son to the nations. Well, that's the centurion. Then there's a crowd in verse 48. All the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. The crowds had been used by the Jewish leaders to convince Pilate to execute Jesus. Many of them also stayed and mocked Christ as he hung from the cross. But after they witnessed everything, including the three hours of darkness, including the way he died, something changed. A horrid feeling came over them and overwhelmed them. They were plagued with a a terribly troubled conscience. A grave injustice had taken place, and they were a part of it. They had taken part in crucifying this innocent man. So when it was all over, they returned home, absolutely haunted at what they had done. They beat their breasts as they went their way, showing their angst. Now, we don't need to conclude that at this point, these people repented of their actions, but it was an important first step. They recognize their guilt. Perhaps it's best to say that this feeling of dread was impressed upon them to prepare them for repentance. And that's what happened for many of them a few weeks later at at Pentecost. Many of these same people would have gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And at that feast, the Lord Jesus poured out His Spirit upon the church. 
Holy Spirit stood up and preached a sermon at the climax of the sermon. Peter directed his message at the crowd saying, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit overwhelmed them with a sense of great conviction. They crucified the Christ. Their reaction in our text may have prepared them for that time. The Spirit convicted them of their sin in Acts 2. And when Peter did confront them, the crowds called out, Brothers, what shall we do? And then Peter gave them that wonderful promise of the gospel. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God forgave them for their part in the murder of God's Son. That is the grace of God. And what an encouragement for us. There are times when that dreadful feeling of guilt might come over us too. You know, what have I done? I've sinned greatly against God. That feeling might overwhelm you. Might shake our confidence in the forgiveness of sins. Here is where we look to the cross of Christ again. In one sense, we are all guilty of the death of Christ. It was our sin that led to his crucifixion. But in that cross, we have forgiveness. Think again of the three hours of darkness. It was a sign that the day of the Lord had come. It was also a sign of God's judgment coming upon Christ for our sins. Think of what happened when Israel served as slaves in Egypt. The ninth plague, three days of darkness. God showing his judgment against Egypt because of their sins with that darkness. We see the same thing in Christ. Three hours of darkness over the land. The same judgment upon sin placed on God's own Son for our sakes. It gives us the confidence of the forgiveness of all of our sins, no matter what we have done. So we repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. They're taken care of. And the curse has been removed. So that's the crowds, and we now end off with the women. Verse 49 describes it like this, And all Jesus' acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Their lives had just been shattered. They didn't understand what happened. The whole world was shattered with the death of their Lord, and all they can do is stand there with their mouth wide open. They didn't understand Jesus' mission. They expected an earthly king to rule in Jerusalem. They did not understand that Jesus had to die for sins and then be raised. Though they mourned, now their sorrow would turn to joy again when Jesus arose from the dead. And that is what the death of Christ accomplishes and his resurrection. Our sorrow will turn to joy. No matter what sorrow we face in this life, we may have sorrows we witness the injustice of the world. As we see Christians trampled and silenced and even persecuted. 
The death of Christ has changed all things. His resurrection has changed all things. We can be sure that our sorrow will always be turned to joy and eternal life. Amen. Let us now respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing hymn 24, the stanzas 1, 2, 4, and 6.